Greetings, fellow travelers, and welcome to The Way of the Showman, where we view the world through the lens of showmanship. I am your gracious host, Captain Frodo. And it's a glorious day here in Norway. It's autumn, it's getting cold. A lot of the time it's raining, but right now the sun is shining spectacularly. The leaves are turning yellow and red. The moss in the ground is wet and full of water. Very, it's a lovely thing after living the last two years in the desert in Nevada. Coming here to Norway, the, I can't get over how lush and wet everything is. It's very, very nice. The forests are nice and inviting. I've been to the mountain and there was powerful winds. So, although we were in nature a lot in Nevada as well, Norway has a very amazing nature. I have um, probably got some particular affinity to it, having grown up with it. It really feels like coming home. Obviously, that is also what I have been doing. But having left Norway in 1996, and never really returned for any length of time. Just little bits here and there. Yeah, it's very nice to be back, to reconnect with the roots. I find that the myths, the Norse mythology is really sort of coming into the forefront of my brain again. I'm reading a book, an old book from the 60s, about a, but it's um, set in the age just as Norway is becoming Christian nation and uh, it's a very interesting time where they're going from the myths into the religion that we know as Christianity today that's all coming in and uh, yeah it's very interesting her name is called Vera Henriksen I don't know if it's a book from the 60s you probably can't find it maybe I'll post a link in the show notes if anyone's interested today's uh, as I talk about our ideas later on I talk a little bit about myths and uh, I talk about plagues, this one and an older one. And I talked to a friend, a fellow showman, who pointed out something that I have been doing in this episode, and it is uh, possibly a little bit inconsistent. Uh, it has to do with the way that I talk about audiences. So often when I'm talking in my essays or in the ramble here before we start, I talk about audiences and or spectators and I call them crowds. And this is a calling, so a calling, calling an audience a crowd seems a little bit, uh, what do you want to say? It's like, it's not very nice. It's, it's a crasser kind of word. An audience is more refined perhaps. And I think maybe when you're doing a street show and you start doing a you do a crowd gathering and that means that you stop and you have all of the stuff that you do before you start the show. I mean, of course, the crowd gathering, the gathering, a crowd just stopping random passers-by, that is also part of the show, but it is a particular section of the show where you are gathering random strangers and they stand scattered around and I think when you sort of pull them in, which is not the way to go at the... Uh, in this time, I've seen a little bit on the forums around Al Miller's uh, Tips for Street Performers forum is alive with this kind of information for those who are on Facebook and 
interested in learning about street performing or uh, thinking about the shows they can't or can't can or can't do at the moment it's a very good resource uh, it's called tips for street performers it's put together by al miller and he gives some excellent tips but anyway this idea that's why i think about them um, i think you turn a crowd into an audience in the beginning of a street show when you pull them in towards you and then they take those few steps forwards and make a nice tight circle around you in that moment as the circle closes they turn into an audience but this is a little bit of a departure from what i wanted to say because i have uh, these kind of definitions of what showmanship is and as i see it there's three pillars in this and it's the it's the showman and the to create a show you need a showman and an audience but although this this next season that we're going to be doing uh, of this uh, show will specifically be about all of this how what the showman is and what the crowd is but the point for now is that i have called it a crowd because i am it's the shortest way to say just a group of people because i see the showman in a very open way as just somebody who faces the others and a crowd is the others who are facing the showman and this means that in this definition of what a of who the showman is and what showmanship is i actually open it up to include all kinds of other things um like teaching uh, where one person is standing the other way and showing and telling the others something and uh, i think in this way we are capturing the most and the biggest scope of this because as some of you have been writing in the in the reviews of the on itunes for this this isn't just interesting what we talk about here the way of the showman isn't just aimed at only being for um, people who are in the industry i'm imagining that a lot of these ideas can in a slightly wider scope if you look at it in a slightly different way i think you can uh, see how it can be applicable to you as well uh, i like the way that in freemasonry they separate between possibly in the very beginning um, there was more of this but what they call operative masons people who actually are masons who put one rock on top of the other and so forth uh, and also they then use um, speculative masons people who are or philosophical masons who are interested in freemasonry but that are not actually going out there doing any bricklaying and i am hoping as we do season two of this that um through these definitions we will see the benefits of having these slightly more open um, definitions so as to include more people into our fold as potential followers along the way of the shaman i guess when it comes down to it i would like this to be a way for everybody it's a very large scope and i think there will be specific instances where we are talking like i have some essays that i wrote 
specifically about how to use music in performance and another long one on how to create an act but viewed in the right way the concept of making an act or acting in the world this could be seen as any act any um, anything that you are doing in the world can be seen like um, we can be beneficially looked at in the same way that we view our own acts so perhaps uh, the assignment this week <clears throat> which is one of the last one we're obviously we're coming up towards the test and i hope you've all been revising and listening through all the episodes and taking the notes if not i will be doing that a little bit next week for the big test i'm sure you're all nervous but anyway i see the way as a grand project something i've been working on and thinking about for a long time and i have many ideas and i find it um, interesting how long it takes to talk about each subject i wanted to just at the end of having spoken a lot about imagination and and all this i wanted to just do a little roundup where i just said a few things about critical thinking and, and you know getting wise to the scams and drudgery of the world and uh, here we are with the third episode to wrap this subject up so without any further ado let's dive into the world of ideas all right it is the penultimate episode the final installment of our getting wise carny style getting carny wise project and today we're gonna overall we're gonna look towards a method of thinking as we talked about last time we our brain is a tool and we're gonna learn how to use it so because there are grains of truth everywhere and we must make our own attitude and approach to the world the gold washing pan um, to sift out the golden grains of truth from all the digital and hyperbolic debris that exists around us. And today we'll look into a powerful method for seeing through illusion. Our senses constantly gives us information about the world and the method we'll check out is a simple but extremely powerful process to assess information. This method, coupled with the knowledge of our cognitive biases and the flaws in logic and reasoning, will become our bullshit detection kit. Bullshit detection toolkit. It's like critical thinking and a healthy, carny-wise attitude are all individual tools in our bullshit detection toolbox. Each tool, a device for grasping and fixing our relationship to the world. Each bias we catch, each deception or subterfuge we discover is a tiny step closer to the reality beyond illusion and the wisdom which lies there. Illumination is not a place we go to. Like life, it's a way. To a, it's a way to journey, not a destination. It's a process and not a thing. So for my faithful listeners and you might remember that in episode two i 
said that uh, science can't tell us everything. And that is true from a limited point of view. I was at that point talking about poetry, uh, poetry and imagination. But what I meant by that was that science can't tell us everything right now. I still think it's our best tool for grasping what we don't know. Science is not, at its essence, a body of knowledge. Facts and knowledge and how to think about information and the world are the fruits of science. They are the products of science because science is a process, a method for developing knowledge and understanding about the world. There are limits to science, but these limits are always moving. Many of the limits of the past are now within the scope of what we know. And I'm going to talk about that later on in regards to plagues and whatnot. But uh, there are real mysteries out there. And I love mysteries. As a kid, I loved books on the great mysteries like why the dinosaurs went extinct and how did the Egyptians build the pyramids and how and why did the Easter Islanders build their enormous statues or Moais, as the Rapa Nui people called them. The kinds of books about mysteries I got from the library frequently hinted that help from aliens in flying saucers could not be ruled out as a solution to either of these three mysteries. These three things, they were mysteries when I grew up, but they aren't mysteries anymore. They used to lie outside the body of knowledge of science, then discoveries were made, and that changed. Those mysteries became less mysterious, but the world is still filled with mysteries, but the mysteries lies beyond those ones that we thought were mysterious before. And I think if you truly love mysteries, you need to know that your object of love truly is a mystery, and not just a mystery to you in your own limited understanding of the world. It's mysterious to me how a uh, swab from my dog's mouth can reveal what breed his parents and ancestors were, but I don't think it's an actual mystery. There are people out there who know how to work that one out. And this makes me think, this process that we're talking about of meeting the world makes me think of the poet David White's concept of the conversational nature of reality. He says, um, nature is always a dialogue, and in every aspect of our interactions or conversations with the world, there will be shortcomings. There will be misunderstandings and gaps in knowledge, and, you know, as we've talked about here, there will also be deliberate concealment and lies, but such is the nature of a conversation. When we first sit down with someone and the first painful question arises, um, what do you do? The conversation is at its very beginning. There is so much unknown and very quickly we might feel whether the chat will be a dead end or a beautiful conversation. If the attitudes in both parts are open and interested, something valuable can happen. And one thing that David White points out is that the world will never be exactly as we want it to be. There will always be things that will be disappointing to us and that will be hard to take and understand. And in the same way, we will also not be everything that the world want from us. 
from what the world wants us to be. Any conversation with a stranger, with a colleague, with a daughter or a son, or with your garden for that matter, will find the other to be different from what you expect or want. This is the no man's land of not knowing. It's the frontier where you meet the world. And it's only really at this frontier between you and the world that your experience is real. Everything else is a kind of model. And as we mentioned last week, every model is wrong. It is limited in scope and complexity. The map is not the territory, but armed with a map or a model, with your self as a compass and a true active open-mindedness, you arrive at the frontier between yourself and the world as it is around you. And in this meeting, you also realize that what you think is you and what you think is not you is blurry. Things thought of as things are so interconnected to the world around them that it becomes hard to distinguish them as discrete things at all. And this, of course, nods to the whole Buddhist notion of the impermanence of all things. But at this frontier, I think this is sort of where magic happens. It's, it's where we recognize and lift the veil of mysteries and where we encounter the limitations of our models of the world. It points to all the work we must do on ourselves and that still lies ahead of us. And this humbling, this is a kind of magic. It's right there at the edge of what we know and what's possible and what's not. And we constantly have to remake and re-understand ourselves and our relationship to the world. Because whatever you desire from the world will not come to pass exactly as you would like it. But also, as we said, whatever the world desires from you will not come to pass. What actually comes to pass is this meeting, this frontier. It is astounding how much time we human beings spend away from that frontier lost in fantasy, fancy and confabulation, and how upset we get when the world does not conform to our desires. David White was a marine biologist working on the Galapagos Islands when he had these insights about the conversational nature of reality. He was a scientist, and scientists work at this frontier, but they're not the only people working there, as David White's biography is a testament to as he felt the scientific language wasn't precise enough to express what he encountered from slowly and contemplatively taking in the natural world and himself. From his meetings with the frontier he changed paths, he changed his lens and mode of interacting with the frontier. He became a poet, and a mighty fine one at that. Poets, philosophers, artists and mystics are also working at the frontier, but with some other tools in their toolbox than the scientists. Science is always trying to remove the I, the subjective uh, viewpoint. Poetry and art puts it back in. I mean, some science does put the I back in as well, to be fair. But part of the aim of science is to get at the reality deeper than the individual, to see through illusion. Science frequently fails in this, wrongs are done, but those wrongs are then scrutinized, and when all the brightest minds has picked away all the wrongs they can see from something, what's left is our best guess 
at the nature of that thing. It is not the same as truth, but it's the best we have. So, what exactly is science? Science is a method for gaining knowledge of the world. It's a self-corrective process. It's not a set of answers, but a process for knowing the everyday world. And Stephen Novella, the host of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, put it brilliantly in one episode, where he says, what do you think science is? There's nothing magical about science. It is simply a systematic way for carefully and thoroughly observing nature and using consistent logic to evaluate the results. Which part of that exactly do you disagree with? Do you disagree with being thorough, using careful observation, being systematic, or using consistent logic? This is all it is. Well put, Mr. Novella. Science is just a systematic way for carefully and thoroughly observing nature and using consistent logic to evaluate the result. It astounds me how much I hear people express anti-science attitudes, and when I do, I'm always brought back to these questions, these questions that Novella poses. Which part of this process is it that you disagree with? Is it being thorough, or is it to carefully observe it? Is it being systematic, or is it using consistent logic? But, um, it's just a method, and a mode for inquiring about the true nature of the world. In such conversations where people say, science don't know everything, or that they don't believe in science, I always feel it's based on a misunderstanding about what science is. It's just a systematic way for carefully and thoroughly observing nature and using consistent logic to evaluate the results. There's nothing to be afraid of, or at least it shouldn't be. It's the only way, if you really love mystery and you really love these things, then you want to make sure that it is a mystery and that it's not just based on a misunderstanding. But of course, I might say that it is nothing to be afraid of, but there is a great history and line of emotional reasoning that says that when you know how something works, it somehow lessens that thing. Famously, this was expressed by the 19th century English poet John Keats. He once bemoaned that Isaac Newton had destroyed the poetry of the rainbow by reducing it to a prism. Natural philosophy, he lamented, will clip an angel's wings, conquer all mysteries by rule and line, empty the haunted air and the gnomed minds, and unweave the rainbow. A very current example of this kind of reasoning I discovered when I was listening to uh, Jay Gilligan and Eric Orkberg's new and excellent podcast, Object Episodes, where they talk about and tell about their quest for a definition of juggling. Listening to their first episode made me think of this Keats poem, because in the process of coming up with this definition, they had to deal with a whole lot of pushback from people who felt that by defining juggling it would somehow limit it and make it less. Knowing a further aspect of the nature of something, and what it is, it should not kill it. That's my opinion anyway, if knowing a further truth about something destroys your love for it, your love might have been, you know, based on false premises, like how a flandering husband 
exposed will change your understanding of them. Your love will change, but it might not die. I find that those who are afraid that a, de a definition of a juggling or a scientific explanation of a rainbow or the method of a magic trick, that this will destroy the thing they love, aren't also the ones who would actually bother seeking out such explanations. The people who are most afraid are also those people least likely to read it, and even if they do read it or stumble upon it, uh, they wouldn't take it in, or unless it resonated with their previously held notions. Confirmation bias that we talked about. I would have thought that a definition of juggling would be a straightforward and necessary thing, but alas, nothing is easy. I recommend anyone listening to Jay and Eric's years of work on a definition to check out their project, uh, podcast project, which is a new word that I just coined. It's the it's a podcast project, and uh, it's called Object Episodes. You find it where you find um, this this uh, podcast. I found. Uh, the whole episode fascinating and somehow reminiscent of the book The Surgeon of Crowthorn, a book about a mad army surgeon and convicted killer's role in the creation of the Oxford English Dictionary. Maybe not so much because of the killer madman, uh, but uh, because of the whole commotion that surrounds the quest for the definitions of uh, words. But John Keats, who talked about unweaving the rainbow, he claimed that knowing why, when it's raining and you have the sun in your back, you can see a rainbow, that the actual optical reasons for this would unweave the rainbow and kill the mystery. But this is where my childhood and life as a magician comes in and makes me disagree. My thinking in regard to mystery and secrets is as follows, and I'll use a quote by Master Illusion Designer and to illustrate my point. Jim Steinmeier said in his book Art and Artifice, Magicians guard an empty safe. In fact, there are few secrets that they possess that are beyond the capacity of a high school science class. Little more complex than a rubber band, a square of mirrored glass, or a length of thread. When an audience learns how it's done, they quickly dismiss the art. Is that all there is? The real art is how the rubber band is handled with the finesse of a jewel cutter, how a mirror is used or concealed precisely, and how a masterful performer can hint at impossibilities that are consummated with only a piece of thread. Jim Steinmeier, interesting guy. Look him up on the interweb. Because secrets, they are, they are ugly. Magical secrets are often very ugly. The methods are simple, but the effects are beautiful. And the art of a magician is not found in the simple deception, but in what surrounds it, the construction of a reality which supports the illusion and creates the illusion, the lie, the scam, the deliberate joining together of real and unreal things creates a beautiful illusion, unleashing in a spectator a state of astonishment. But a secret that is blurted out, all mundane and deflated, will be ugly and vulnerable like a newborn baby. It's a well-known fact that babies 
are both fragile and can be quite ugly, but to their parents, they are so full of life and so endlessly beautiful. The craft of magic is actually initiatory. You can learn secrets, but to be able to receive the secrets like a parent receiving a child, you must be ready for it. If you're initiated into the secrets before you are ready, the secrets are ugly. But when you are ready, when you have the capacity to see beyond the cold hard facts, the accountant's truth, you will see beauty in the simplicity of the method. Elegance and simplicity is in certain situations a measure of truth. Not the only one, but a powerful nonetheless. Think Occam's razor and Einstein's uh, E equals MC square. What I'm trying to say is that any magic secret that is blurted out with bad intent will be an ugly truth. And Oscar Wilde said, a truth that's told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. Properly initiated, the beauty of the rainbow will still be there when you know the physics reasons for its existence. For the initiated, for the magician, who learns about the secret method behind the effects, all the knowledge does is open up a whole new dimension for loving the effect. It is only the most surface-like way that the effects, only in the most surface-like uh, way that the effects magic beauty is broken. The fragility and precariousness of secrets and explanations of effects is why many comedy magicians, the bad ones in my opinion, relies on showing how a trick works immediately after showing the trick. In such a dispiriting reveal, the secret or method becomes nothing but a punchline. And the trick itself is just the setup for a joke. It doesn't uh, anymore become a secret key that can be used to unlock the experience of astonishment, not a key to unlock a new realm of ways to love and affect, be it the rainbow or a way to make a wedding ring float in the air. When a secret is revealed at just the time when someone is ready for it, a further and deeper kind of astonishment can appear. Not dispiriting loss of hope and enthusiasm, but the exact opposite, heartening and revitalizing. Your relationship to an effect changes when you know the method, but the effect is still the same. When you watched it for the first time, the method was always there. You saw it differently. In a way, you could say you misunderstood it. In another way, we can say that you saw one aspect one facet, one facet of it. You saw it as a child would see it. Santa, the Tooth Fairy are beautiful cultural creations and all us who have children must tread the line of treading gently whilst treading on the hopes and dreams of our little ones as they learn that some of our most beautiful things aren't actually true. A secret Scientific or magical might be simple, insignificant and perhaps boring, but it has a huge power and potential. It's still a beautiful and astonishing effect, even when you know the secret. Astonishment is a human emotion, 
an innate way of human experience, and the astonishment is always real, even if it's based on a limited understanding of the world. Each time we're faced with a mystery, some astonishing phenomenon in the world, it has turned out to have a very different explanation than our ancestors imagined. Thunder was not in any practical or real sense caused by a guard riding in a cart pulled by goats, like the mighty Thor did. The rainbow might not in any literal sense be a bridge by the name of Bifrost, which links the human world to the world of gods. Now I'm talking here of Norse mythology again, interestingly for those of us who are walking the midway of life, the middle way. The world of humans in the Norse mythology is called Midgard, the middle yard or the middle place. So they were already onto the midway. As our understanding of the world grows, so must our capacity for love and further astonishments grow. It must grow to encompass our new and truer knowledge. The world remains the same. All that's changed is you. You have had a disappointing conversation with reality. Once again, the world did not turn out to conform to your desires. You encountered the frontier between you and the world, and the result was disappointing for both parties. You did not find the world to conform to your every desire, and likewise the world found you and your response lacking. But just because it turns out that the rainbow wasn't a burning bridge connecting two worlds does not stop that from being true in a certain sense. The explanation was a human explanation, a valuable part of our collective imaginary, true to those who created them as explanations for the world, showcasing a different truth. It was a way to view the world that made sense to my ancestors for thousands of years. And at some point, roughly around year 1000, the Vikings began to question the myths in earnest, much like the early Greek philosophers had begun doing at about 600 before year zero. One of the first things philosophers did was to question myths. It was the dawn of a new way of seeing the world. This, in itself, bears a connection to the scientific method. It is to carefully and thoroughly observe nature and use consistent logic to evaluate the results. In this sense, if you start looking at the powers of nature as beings, like Thor and Odin, then, by that logic, the myths had great truths to tell. There are areas we don't know enough about at the moment, but that does not mean that we won't know more in the future. We might never know the full truth of everything, but not knowing does not mean that it won't be worked out in the future. The mystery is always ahead of us, like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Each time you get close enough to find it, you can no longer see the rainbow. So far, every time humans have looked into a mystery, the solution has been found to reside within the natural, as have yet to, we have yet to discover uh, that the reason for anything is supernatural, and as Tim Minchin says, throughout history, every mystery ever solved has turned out to be not magic. But this 
does not necessarily mean that gods don't exist, that Thor doesn't in one way or another serve as an excellent explanation for thunder, but there is a distinct pattern in the exploration of things we don't understand. Perhaps the next time it will turn out that the answer lies in ESP, extrasensory perceptions, or maybe aliens. But so far the track record does not look so promising. Those times where there has been some hope of the solution lying in the supernatural, it's frequently turned out that the evidence in question was indeed presented by a magician or another kind of showman. I don't believe show folks are to blame for the existence and human tendency to believe in supernatural phenomena, but I do believe that much of the evidence for its existence has been provided by magicians, showmen, and religious cranks. So, that being said, let's look at a tiny glimpse of the human quest to understand something. In these strange times with the pandemic, I want to take a closer look at disease. The cause of disease was outside the Vikings' scope of knowledge. They presumed disease was some, had something to do with the gods and goddesses or different kinds of magic. So in a sense, they did have explanations for the disease, the reasonings they might have done based on this or that transgression in the eyes of the gods might have been logical, but since their collective imaginary was out of line with a world in a more sort of real, uh, modern sense, the cures and magic and the prayer and sacrifice they engaged in to alleviate someone's uh, gout were not as effective as the cures discovered through the scientific method. And of course, they did have herbs and remedies for certain things, but by our standards, they were ill-equipped to face uh, most diseases. So, this next bit is kind of a little history, history of science, um, to understand the process and uh, how science moves forwards. And to make it as relevant as possible, let's look at an even more devastating plague than, than the one we have now, the Black Death or bubonic plague which swept through Europe from around 1346 and wiped out a third of the population. Imagine that. Think of two people you know, including you, one of you would die. That puts the current pandemic into some perspective. I mean, this plague went across the world, but it wasn't just a European thing, it was also went everywhere. And at the time, uh, in 1340s, they didn't know why people got sick. They knew that the disease was contagious, and that once someone was infected you could catch the plague from them, and there are also contemporary accounts saying that merely touching the clothes of someone who has been sick is enough to infect you, which is true. Even when the disease is no longer the diseased person isn't wearing them, uh, and even when they have been buried and somebody buried it up a long time later, you could still get sick. And the doctors of the Middle Ages didn't know the course of the disease and we didn't uh, work it out or understand it for hundreds of years. Understanding the cause of the Black Death was only possible through many links in a chain of discoveries. The scientific method was what eventually led to the discovery of the cause, but since we hadn't even really invented science yet uh, back then, science was still 
200 years or so away from being formalized. They had a hard time working it out. The learned of the time still had their theories and explanations. Some thought the answer was to be found in the movements of the planets or foul miasmas, bad smells and corrupt air and other others thought it was a punishment from God. So one of the cures or ways of not contracting the disease, following the logic of it being a transgression in the eyes of the Lords or Lord, that was mainly Christian at that time in Europe, it was to turn inwards and to examine one's soul and the many ways they might have offended God in thought and action. This led to things like processions of people engaging in self-flagellation. People would like ceremoniously walk along and whip themselves into bloody messes with leather strips studded with metal pieces to prostrate themselves and to show their humiliation and regret for their transgressions before the Lord who they assumed was punishing them. As can even be imagined, uh, it had not such a big effect on getting rid of or avoid getting the plague. So in a certain sense, their explanations based on invisible forces was not as off the mark as one might think, because the course did exist in an invisible world beyond or beneath or, in effect, all around us, around them at the time. Entities which were everywhere but could not be seen was having a very real impact on the world. The realm which caused the disease was not supernatural. It was hidden in scale. And this is somehow reminding me of the Arthur C. Clarke's uh, law of the... where he says any technology sufficiently advanced uh, will be indistinguishable from magic. But um, here it's not so much the, it, the technology that makes it seem like magic, but the lack of technology to discover the course also makes it seem like uh, um, magic because um, the people in the middle ages um, oh yeah so it wasn't supernatural it was hidden in scale because the people of the middle ages um, they knew only of the world which was in the scale that was relevant to human beings they didn't understand the world of the extremely large like planets and stars and more importantly for our plague explorations they didn't know there existed an infinitely tiny world filled with organisms both good and extremely bad. All along the way of this not knowing, there were people saying that the cause for the plague could never be known, the ways of the Lord was mysterious and so forth. And this is always the way. Meanwhile, intrepid explorers of the world tirelessly continued the quest to understand and discover more of the world's exquisite complexities. They weren't looking for the plague, but they came to play a role in its eventual discovery. So, let's look at one of these steps. In the 1660s, so a good 200 years, now let's see what was it, 13, 14, 15, 16, 300 years later, a Dutch businessman and scientist called Antony van Leeuwenhoek was grinding glass into lenses and he fashioned it into a microscope and looked through it. Apparently Leeuwenhoek wasn't quite the first one to make a microscope, but the one he made was really good and it could achieve uh, more than 200 times magnification. And what he saw had never been seen before. Imagine that. 
take it in, the unbelievable scope of this discovery. You're into glass grinding, making lenses, and by placing them in relation to each other and looking through them, you see things that are tiny, and when you have focused your um, microscope properly, you discover an entire world, a world that's always been there, and it's right there, right now, crawling around on your skin, in your hair, in your eyebrows, tiny little creatures, face mites and dust mites, but no one at that time had seen them or knew that this whole world was there, the world of the microscopic, the tiny. Leuvenhoek peered through his microscope and discovered little tiny beings floating about, wiggling and moving. It was a whole world that lived and fought and died and he called the organisms that he saw animacules, like tiny, minuscule animals. Leuvenhoek was the first to spot red blood cells, and he was also the first to discover spermatozoa, the little tadpole-looking blob with the tail that enters the egg and in which the union of new life is, begins, which I guess that old Leuvenhoek rubbed one out for science. But in uh, 1683, Leuvenhoek wrote a letter to the to Britain's Royal Society describing the animacules he observed under the microscope, and this letter is the very first known description of bacteria, which is a clue for us going on. With Leuvenhoek, the microscopic world became known to science, and it caused a whole flurry of research. Lens grinders got to work, and soon human beings were peering both up into the sky at the infinitely large and far away, and also peering down at the infinitely tiny all around us and inside us and everywhere. So then, 200 years after Leeuwenhoek, let's jump to 1894, a man by the name of Alexandre Yersin, a Swiss-French physician, was sent by the Pasteur Institute and the French government to Hong Kong, which uh, was having an outbreak of the Black Death. And the Institute sent him there to uh, explore it, investigate this uh, plague. Because the Black Death was not eradicated in the 1300s, it just went away for a while. It kept popping up with some regularity around the globe and in a more limited scope it um, still does actually but like as in today 2020 this is what um, will also continue happening um, with the pandemic that we're going through at the moment but be that as it may imagine alexandra um, yerson being sent into an outbreak of the black death that's pretty scary even today with all the knowledge we have of how to protect ourselves against virulent diseases the risk of getting into the thick of it is significant and when Yerson arrived in Hong Kong he was denied access to British hospitals after all he was French and the British hated the French so Yerson ended up lodging in a small hut and it was in this cottage peering through his microscope on bits of pus that had been gathered from the blisters under the arms of the people who had died. He, and, and I don't know the exact, I might have made that specific thing uh, up, he might have gathered uh, it from, uh, from some pus from another part that I am not sure about, but uh, 
it was in his microscope, in this pus, that he spotted the pathogen which caused the Black Death. It wasn't a bad smell or an interventionist god. It was a species of Leuvenhoek's animalcules, a bacteria. And later this bacteria would be named Yersinia pestis, after um, the discoverer. And for completion, there was also a Japanese doctor called Kitasato Shibasaburo, who uh, identified the same bacterium at almost the exact time during the exact uh, same outbreak in Hong Kong. Maybe the discovery was ripe in time. This has actually happened many times in history, like with the invention of the radio. But anyway, this is the way of science. Each one of the people we've talked about here, like Leuvenhoek and, and uh, all these people, um, They've employed the scientific method. Each one was dedicated in their exploration of the world and each one was building on the knowledge of the ones who went before them. Sometimes by taking an instrument like the microscope and building upon the methods for understanding what they saw through it. Sometimes it, uh, it is by taking, taking some claim proposed by someone before you and examining it, picking it apart and connecting it back up again with new information from yourself and others. And like everyone before him, Yerson could only discover what he did because so many others before him had systematically and thoroughly observed nature and used consistent logic to evaluate the results. Or, as Matt Damon so aptly put it in The Martian, that old science the fuck out of it. All the intrepid explorers of reality, each one looking into their own corners of the great a mystery of existing and existence, each through their own diligent work, were lifting a tiny piece of the veil of mystery, each one always struggling to find a signal in the noise. And they wanted to find a signal that was really there, so that when Yerson told others where to look and what to look for, they could find it. Much like when someone tells you that if you tune your radio to 96.7 FM, you will find a classical station. Yerson could point to the bacteria and say, when you tune your microscope to that, you are looking at the cause of the Black Death. And that is the main point here. And it ties it together with what we've talked about before, about the breakdown of consensus reality. That to be able to tune into the same reality, that is a very important thing. And as we've talked about at length with social media and the rise of the so-called post-factual reality, which is a lot of bullshit if you ask me, I'm flabbergasted at that there are people out there who does not trust experts by default. I completely understand that you need to be skeptical to experts. One can question this or that supposed expert or their conclusions, but there will always be scammers and bullshit artists, of course, in any profession. But to doubt that it is possible to build up a body of knowledge and thus become an expert, that is just ridiculous. In our craft of showmanship and circus and performance, there are some that are great performers and there are some that aren't. There is often a strong correlation between having done a lot of performing, having a lot of experience and being a great performer. These things are connected. The ones who've had a lot of experience and that does great shows by the virtue of that experience are experts at their craft. 
Such is also the way with everything else under the sun. When we step into any field with little to no knowledge about the subject and then begin to tell those who've been in the game for their entire working lives that they're doing what they're doing is wrong, then most of us, when we say do that, we're certainly wrong. There are exceptions, of course, but um, and the fact that these are exceptions means that most of the time when someone comes in and don't know what they're talking about, they don't know what they're talking about. Anyway, this is not to say that a biologist might not be able to offer a great insight into the complexity theory or chaos theory that a system analyst might not have considered. One expert might be able to shed some light on one thing or another in another profession, but ultimately it's the expert in the complexity science or whatever. It's the expert which will be able to judge the validity and the value of the biologist's suggestion. Where science often falls short is in dealing with the things humans create or when humans are involved. Like we mentioned last week, just because uh, you know a lot of stuff does not make it easier for you to spot the scam when you see it. Humans deliberately lie. They tell stories that connect the dots in amazing and beautiful ways, but that aren't true. Many people also fill in the gaps in the dots needed to tell a credible story with tricks and scams. And this is why when anyone is researching any claims of the paranormal, or at least when any mysteries presented by human beings are looked into, there needs to be a magician present in the laboratory. A carny. That's, well, James Randi talked about this, talk about the, having a magician in the laboratory. Scientists studying bacteria through microscopes are not schooled in the ways of deceit. Magicians are. When exploring the limits of what's possible, it's good to have a good, well-rounded showman around. There is a role for the showman. Knowing the way we deceive ourselves and each other is a study in itself. That field is the field of magic, but secular magic, magic tricks, misdirection, subterfuge. This is an important tool in the bullshit detection kit, and there is a role for science, skepticism, and rational thinking. All these tools, throw them in. There were so many more things that I wanted to say about getting good tools to put into your bullshit detection kit, but I'll place a full stop here for now. I would though, like to point you out towards books like Carl Sagan's The Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark, and to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. They have a book on how to know what's really real in a world increasingly full of fake. And also, you know, James Randi, his work, he's the guy that offers up a million dollars to anyone who can show him anything supernatural whatsoever. And I, Captain Frodo, love mysteries. And even though we keep lifting the veil on all the great mysteries the world has to offer, I believe that there will always be more mysteries to discover. The mystery, like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, is always out of reach. Learning how to deal with things like the fact that the tooth fairy isn't real, that the spirits of the spiritism craze of the late 1800s or early 1900s was caused by magicians presenting their acts, and that a rainbow is a multicolored arc made due to the striking of light on water droplets is part 
of us all growing up in the universe. We're shedding innocence for experience, and all we can do is cultivate a mindset that can stay strong and invigorated in the face of whatever outcome of our conversations at the frontiers between ourselves and the world is. In a nutshell, this is all one big rallying cry for us to stay and to get Kani wise. And thank you very much. We are wrapping up another exciting episode in this here quest for truth and wisdom and getting Kani wise. We're wrapping up the final episode on that project. It ended up being significantly shorter than a mythopoetic project. And it is also the final episode before we do a slightly different wrap-up episode next time. And uh, this is your last chance to tell a friend, think of one friend who would like to join us along the way. Send them a private message and say, next week is the last episode they will be able to listen to as it's coming out fresh, hot off the press, weekly. After that, there will be a break. So, they, of course, all the episodes will still be there. But think of a friend. Think of one person. And think of me as your friend. And this is what you can do for me. I don't want a cup of coffee. I don't want any money from you. I just want you to tell a friend. And for your friend, for hopefully, to enjoy the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All that's left to say is uh, take care of yourself and those you love. And I hope to see you along the way.